The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.
wonder, you know, we can probably all say that at some point or another we've all tried to gain some personal reward through seeking to please someone else. You know, whether it be pleasing others or pleasing ourselves, each and every one of us lives to please someone. The thing is, is who we live to please can have quite a significant impact on our lives, either positive or negative. Now, so often in, in seeking to please others for ourselves, we can end up becoming incredibly disappointed and hurt, or at best, constantly anxious about we can keep, how we can keep doing enough to maintain the level of pleasure that comes from this, to maintain those people's approval. The thing is, living to please people will result in some kind of form of bondage. We're imprisoned by trying to meet constant expectations, whether they're our own or whether they're those of the people around us. And in this, it then robs us. It steals from us true joy and the beauty of life the way that we were meant to enjoy it. One commentator writes this, he said, You were created by God with a unique personality, unique gifts and talents, to be used in such a way as to bring something to this world that no one else can and in using these things in the way God designed, you bring joy to the one who made you and you bless others. This is the way to true satisfaction and contentment in our lives. And the Bible makes it very clear that if we want to experience this in our lives, and it comes from living a life that first and foremost seeks to please God. This is Paul's emphasis in our passage today. He calls us to live lives that please God. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Straight away, in these words in this passage, we're challenged about what our life goals and priorities are. So often they can be very self-centered and very worldly. And the question we have to ask ourselves if we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ is, is our main focus to live a life that pleases God? Is this the thought that fills your mind as you rise each morning and you begin your day? You know, what things can I do? What attitudes do I need in order to, to bring pleasure to the one who created me, to the one who loved me, and to the one who has sought to save me? Is the thought that comes to mind when the pressures of life begin to press in and you, you look for, for relief in some way, is, you know, is the thought is, how can I, how can I get, how can I relieve myself of this? How can I find ways in which to, you know, to bring pleasure, you know, outside of God? Is the thought, when you're looking for that relief, is the thought that comes to mind, Lord, how can I please you in this? We heard this morning about how many people at the moment are going through those struggles, and particularly our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we find ourselves in similar things, 
seeing that, that thought in our mind, Lord, how can I please you even in the midst of these circumstances that I find myself? I need to remind us all very, very clearly that this morning, and I, I want you to really get this point very, very clearly. Is that we do not seek to please God to earn His love. We do not seek to please God to earn His blessing or His favor. Because for the follower of Christ, we already have that. We already have that in Jesus Christ. In Keller once wrote, the goal is not to appease God, because we're unable to, but instead it is to please Him. And we seek to please God out of our love for Him, out of honour to Him. For He alone lives, our Creator, He alone is the Almighty God. He is the one who is sovereign over all things. And he alone deserves all honor and praise and glory. But he also has provided us forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ, despite our rejection of him. He daily pours out his grace and his mercy and his blessing and his provision in our lives. He gives us the greatest hope and, and, and purpose for our lives to serve him, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to proclaim His good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to people who are lost in the spiritual darkness. He calls us to please Him in order to bring glory to His name, knowing that He is always with us and that will one day bring us to be with Him forever. That is the reason we please God. We seek to live life that pleases God. Paul commends these Thessalonian Christians and encourages them by saying, you're already doing that. But that they shouldn't rest on their laurels. He's saying the Christian life is not about just sort of getting, getting to a certain level and just maintaining it or staying there. Is it about constantly improving and constantly growing? And particularly, as Paul says here, it is learning how to get better and better at living lives that please God. And of course, when we think about, when we talk about, you know, what it means to live a life that pleases God, we've got to ask ourselves, then what does that look like? If we're going to live lives that please God, what does it consist of? And this is what Paul expands in these following verses from 2 through to, uh, to 12, where he says, To live a life that pleases God means to live lives of holiness and purity, to grow in our love for others, especially the family of God, and also to live peaceful and productive lives. Okay, so that's the, the path we're going we're to tread as we work through this together this morning. So let's begin with living a life of holiness and purity. We see that in verses 3 to 8 of our passage today, where Paul states in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification is one of those big theological words, but it basically means to be set apart for God and His purposes. It comes from the same root word that we get the word holy. And it is the process whereby, in the believer's life, the Holy Spirit works in our lives 
to conform us more and more to be like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit works this, this process of sanctification in our lives is through the Word of God. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus in his prayer to God prays for his disciples and he says to the Lord, God, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit through the way in which the Spirit takes the word of God and applies it to our lives. As we hear as the word preached and taught, as we read and as we meditate upon the word of God, the Spirit brings a conviction in our heart to its truth and helps us to put these things in practice in our lives. Not only that, the Spirit also gives us the power to resist temptation and sin and to obey the word of God. And living this this holy life, this set-apart life for God means that there will be certain practices and, and behaviors that are not proper for God's children. And Paul says here that sanctification involves abstaining from sexual immorality. He says we are to control our body and not give in to the passion of life like those who do not know God. See that in verse 4 of our passage this morning. You know, for us living today, we live in a very sexualized culture. We're constantly being conditioned to believe that we should be free to follow our own desires when it comes to sexuality. Except that those things deemed, you know, abhorrent by, by general society. You know, in the New Testament, the, uh, the word that most, is often, that most often is translated sexual immorality is the Greek term pornea. This word is also translated as fornication or just simply immorality. And it means a surrendering of our sexual purity. From this Greek word, we get the word pornography in English. And that stems from the concept of, of selling off. And therefore, sexual immorality is the, is the selling off of our sexual purity and it involves any type of sexual activity outside the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage relationship between the man and the woman. Of course, we read about that in passages like Genesis 2 and Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5. It says, you know, for this reason, a man shall join with cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In terms of this, this whole aspect of, of sexual immorality, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, he says, But among you, speaking about the people of God, he says, There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, the Apostle Paul writes and tells us to flee 
to run from as fast as we can, flee from sexual immorality. For every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or did you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, who you have from God? Paul speaks about this here in chapter 4 and verse 8, where he says that, you know, that, 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 that God gives his spirit to us. You are not your own, Paul goes on to say. You are bought at a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Unfortunately, statistics reveal today that for many Christians, they think that it is all right to have sex prior to marriage, even if it is with the person you intend to marry. It's okay to cohabitate. It's okay to, to look at pornography or to commit adultery or any of these, these kind of things. God's Word says that these things are not okay for His children. And it's not because God is trying to, to limit our so-called fun and enjoyment of life. It's because God says that these things are damaging to us. They damage us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In verse 6, we are told that we are not to transgress and wrong our brother through this sort of behavior. God sees that it is incredibly damaging. And if we disregard this teaching, we are disregarding not just man's words, but we are disregarding God, whom it says here in the passage will hold us accountable. God, it says that God is an avenger in these things. God takes this matter of sexual immorality incredibly seriously because it is damaging to us as his creatures. We have God's Holy Spirit within us. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, if we claim to put our faith and trust in Him as our Savior, we have His Holy Spirit within us. And therefore, our bodies are temples. They are temples of God's Holy Spirit. And therefore, they are sacred things. And we need to speak them as such. First, modern thinking and culture will tell us that we are the ones that are out of step with society, that we're too, or homophobic, or unloving, or hateful, or even damaging and harmful to our society. As Bill mentioned earlier, this fellow Andrew Thorburn, who just this week was appointed as the uh, executive to an executive position on the AFL Board of Essendon football team, that after just one day was forced to step down from that role because the fact that he was also the head of the board of his church, City on a Hill in Melbourne. The Premier of that state publicly stated that these views, his views, the views of his church, have no place in our society. The Premier of the state of Victoria said these views have no place in our society. As followers of Jesus, we have to determine in our hearts who we are truly going to live to serve. Is it going to be men 
to be about 12 or others, or is it in case I'm going to A life that pleases God is a life characterized by holiness and purity, but it is also a life characterized by Christ-like brotherly love. Let's see that in verses 9 to 10 this morning. Now, there are two occasions in this letter where Paul has already commended these Thessalonian believers on their love for others. You see it in chapter 1 and verse 3, and also in chapter 3 and verse 6. But yet, he also urges them to keep improving in this area. Chapter 3 and verse 12, chapter 4 and verse 1, and chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul urges and encourages believers to keep getting better at loving the brothers. And we please God when we practice showing love towards one another in increasing measure. In other words, we should seek to be outdoing one another in our love for each other, not out of competition, but because it pleases our Heavenly Father and our Father Jesus. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, that is the love between believers, he says, You have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now that command to love each other is the hallmark, or is one of the hallmarks of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. John chapter 13, verse 35 says, By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Writing to the Roman church, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. First John chapter 3 and verse 18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I could go on and on with all these verses about how we ever love one another. But on the flip side of this, showing this kind of love, not showing this kind of love can reveal something to us as well. First John chapter four and verse eight says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And one John chapter four verse twenty says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar, for he do, does not love his brother whom he has seen. Sorry, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was the greatest demonstration of love this world has ever seen and will ever know. And as his followers, we ourselves. I call to show that same sacrificial love towards one another, putting the needs of others before our own, honouring one another. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, that is the Spirit within us, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being united in spirit and having one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider one another better than yourselves. 
that each of you look carefully not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so the question again for us today is, am I, am I dwelling in my life for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Not just in this church, but in God's universal church. Am I growing in love? And how am I showing this kind of love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Of course, Christian service is a principal way we can do this. Wherever we see a need, if we have capacity and are able to help, then we should do so. It's wonderful to to hear how, you know, Beth can get up here and say, you know, the meals and the support that this family across the, at the school over here has been getting from this church is tremendous. And it's tremendous to sort of hear it, you know, some of our uh, folks who are actually taking other people to appointments through the week. In fact, some of our elderly folks are driving those younger than to themselves to appointments and things during the week, doctor's appointments and so forth. It's wonderful to see, you know, people who are getting on the phone each week or sending emails or cards to, to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging them and saying, hey, listen, we're thinking of you. We haven't seen you at church for a while. Are you okay? Is there anything we can do to help out? So these things are, are tremendous to hear, and it's, it's wonderful to hear that's going on in the life of this church. But as we read in this passage, we ought, to, we ought to grow even more in this. We ought to be doing more and more and more of it. You know, we should not have any problems filling rosters or ministry needs in this church if we all see it as a means of showing love to one another through serving them. And Jesus himself has set us the example of self-sacrificial love. But can I ask you again? Are you serving? As you see the needs around about you, are you responding to those ones that you are capable to respond to and have capacity to respond? Because this is a way in which we please our heavenly Father. A life that pleases God is a life of holiness and purity. It's also a life characterized by Christ-like brotherly love. And finally, it is a life characterized by peacefulness and prosperity. Now, in the last bit of this section, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers that they should aspire. In other words, make it their ambition to live quietly, to live peacefully, and to mind their own affairs and to work with their hands so they walk properly towards outsiders and are not dependent upon anyone. Straight away, well, hang on, Duncan, are you contradicting yourself there? Well, you know, we're to help those, but really we're not actually meant to depend on anyone at all. Well, no, that's not what Paul's saying. It's interesting, particularly in Paul's context, this particular context here in Thessalonians, we'll look at this a little bit next week, uh, is that, you know, these people were expecting Jesus to return at any time. And so some people had actually given up their employment and were just waiting around for Jesus to come. And they were basically sponging off their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul is driving at here in this particular passage, and why he says we're not to, we're to, we're to work productively and we're not to depend on anyone from that perspective. So, this living a quiet life really, these things that Paul is talking about here, working productively, 
really build up of the life we should have for others. This peaceful, quiet life that Paul's referred to here is the kind of life that has a, an air of, of calmness and settledness to it. This person is characterized by a, a meekness and a humility. A person who does not seek to stir up trouble or is, is quarrelsome. Like Proverbs 26, 21 warns us, there's star coals for hot embers and wood for fire. So is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. We are not to be like that. It's quite the opposite. This whole aspect of, being, of living a quiet life is picked up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, where Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that's a clue as to what a peaceful and quiet life looks like. It is a godly and dignified life. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of His truth. In other words, folks, we're not to make a big fanfare of ourselves and of our lives. For oftentimes the best witness that we can have for God is to go about our lives with the least amount of trust and to have a solid confidence in Him and in His way despite our circumstances. We should mind our own business and go about only to live productive lives to the best of our ability. And there's something very attractive about that kind of life, isn't there? I'm sure many of you can, can think of, of someone who, who very much resembles this, this peaceful, quiet life to the of God in life and business a life for which is kindness about it because that person has got that steady, rock-like faith and confidence in God and in His life. That kind of witness, that kind of testimony can speak volumes to those around the world in our world today. You know, there will be many who will hate us for this kind of witness, but there will also be those who will be attracted to it. But either way, our goal should be to represent God well to others and to please Him above all else. For it is in doing this that we ourselves will find great pleasure and fulfillment. I'm leaving you with this question today before we come to the final communion. We've seen how living a life that pleases God is a life of what holiness and purity. It's a life characterized by brotherly love. And it's a life that is characterized by peacefulness and productivity. How will you put these things into practice this week in your life? What kind of prayers will you need to bring before God our Father? I'm asking you to be that good kind of person in these days and in these weeks what practical steps can you take in order to be a person who seeks to put God above all else in your life and his pleasure? What practical steps do you need to take? The Holy
Holy Spirit, I'm sure, will prompt you in these things. I can sit here and give you a whole list of do's and don'ts. But ultimately, all that results in, well, I can tick that, I can tick that box, and I can tick that box, and I can tick that box where I can. That's not what God wants to He wants not a to-do list, but He wants a heart that is completely and utterly sober after Him. And if our heart is that way, then folks, we will live a life that pleases God. You can guarantee it. We're going to come now to a time of communion together. And this time is a time of examination. It's a time of examining our own lives before God, of allowing His Holy Spirit to convict us in our hearts. This meal, this bread, and this, this wafer, this, this juice, this you're representing the body and blood of Jesus. The meal, this meal speaks about the seriousness of sin. It speaks about God's judgment on sin. That God will indeed judge and punish all sin. And it would take the death of Jesus, God's own Son, in order to make atonement we all stand condemned. In our natural human fallen self, we all stand condemned before God. His wrath, His righteous anger, is His holy response to sin and to sinners. Yet this meal also speaks of God's grace and mercy and love in that he himself, through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had come to take our place and receive the judgment and the punishment that we deserve for our sins, and therefore providing forgiveness and life for all who come to him in repentance and faith. But it's a time of examination. It is a time of remembering the seriousness of sin, but also the grace and the faithfulness and the love of God. It is also a time to remember that we are God's family, called to love one another and to serve one another, just as Christ has done for us. And it is also a pointer to a bright future when one day we will be free from this world, free from sin that affects everything, and live in the very presence of our Savior Jesus Christ. So I invite you as uh, we come to these elements this morning, just before we partake, just to take time, perhaps to confess your sins to God this morning, to thank Him for His mercy and His grace, and to ask Him now how you might live a life that pleases Him. Take a, take a few minutes just to do that now.
Jesus himself. And then, just before he went to the cross, then with his disciples in the upper room, he took the bread, he gave thanks to God, and he said to his disciples, Eat this bread in remembrance of me, as it's forgotten. We thank you for this meal this morning and for all that it symbolizes. Lord, we pray that we as your people will indeed give honor and glory to you in our lives. Help us to do that through the power of your indwelling spirit with us, that we might honor you and bring glory to you. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.